0: Welcome to the Wego Places podcast, where we catch up with Wego grads with unique careers and the roads they travel to get there. I'm your host Brian Turnbaugh, English teacher at Wego since 2001, and you just heard intro music from Max Russo, class of 2020. Today we talk to Meili Hay, class of 2013, a mechanical design engineer for Northrop Grumman and a team member building NASA's James Webb Space Telescope. Meili is also a co-founder of Atuero. A nonprofit organization that assists people with disabilities in underdeveloped countries. Meili will share with us how her time spent firing in the kiln and ceramics class at WeGo helped shape her imagination for designs while working on NASA's next great deep space telescope. If you're interested in reading more about Meili's organization, you can find a link on the episode page or visit atuero.org. That's A T W E R O o-r-g. Joining us today from the class of 2013 is Meili Hay. Meili, what do you do?
1: Hey, I'm happy to be here. Like uh, Mr. Turnbaugh said, my name's Lee. I am a mechanical design engineer on the James Webb Space Telescope.
0: So, Meili, let's start from maybe the beginning. Mm-hmm. How did you? get from West Chicago and get to San Diego? Because that's where you did your undergrad, correct? Yeah. How did you choose San Diego as opposed to uh, any of these other places? Sure. You could have gone to school.
1: Yeah. Well, I applied uh, to quite a few schools. I think something like 10, pretty much across the country. Um, I had a good idea that I wanted to come out West. Um, I just, I'd been to San Diego one other time and totally loved it. But uh, the reason why I ended up choosing San Diego was because um, they had a pretty liberal arts type of engineering degree where I would be getting a bachelor's in science and a bachelor's in art at the same time. It seemed like some of the other schools I was applying to, they were pretty tech focused, which is always a good thing. I mean, I could I could now give you the positives and negatives of going to a school that had such a... Um, interest in having um, a lot of core classes and a lot of liberal arts classes on top of an engineering degree. Um, But it was that and it was also the scholarship. University of San Diego was a private school and they gave me a very good scholarship. So I think it was between there and uh, University of Dayton in Ohio. And I visited Dayton, Ohio a week before I visited San Diego and there was a snowstorm and we got stuck there for a while and i think just the two experiences um i went with san diego <laughs>
0: It's a uh, pretty un yeah pretty tough juxtaposition of uh, weather patterns: San Diego yeah. perfection and snowstorm of Ohio. So I can yeah. see how you uh, landed on uh, San Diego for sure. Yeah. Now, did you know that you wanted to be an engineer when you went to San Diego? I mean, you said you kind of knew that there was a balance there, but what was the uh, what was your kind of uh, search to maybe find that particular uh, field of study?
1: Yeah, you know, I wasn't totally set on engineering. I think I was pretty undecided uh, when I first went out there, but I had an idea that engineering might be, um, a good career to pursue. It was between that and visual arts, um, because I really loved painting. I loved my ceramics classes, um, at West Chicago. They were my favorite. So I was, um, in between those two. And so it was nice that university of San Diego, they had a program. If I did end up changing my mind, you know, and wanting to switch into fine arts, I could do that at University of San Diego. Um, But I ultimately stuck with engineering, because I kind of realized how much creativity was involved with engineering as it was, and kind of decided to leave painting and ceramics um, as hobbies as something that I could do for me, instead of for a career.
0: What were some of the the kind of early projects that you had at the University of San Diego that really kind of gave you the type of traction to, to feel the, that, yeah, this is exactly where I'm supposed to be. Do you remember like, was it a a class or was there like a particular hands-on project that really kind of uh, solidified your decision?
1: Yeah, I think that, um, my first year there was, I had to take a machine shop class And I learned how to weld as a freshman, which I thought was, like, pretty insane. And I loved the hands-on experience of um, that machine shop class. So I think um, that's when I kind of was like, all right, there's a lot of, you know, there's still a lot of... creativity going on here I mean I'm in a machine shop and I can make whatever I want and specifically uh, my sophomore year it was um, we had a woman come to our university and speak she was being honored as a woman's peacemaker her name is Margaret O'Retch and she um, talked to us about uh, how hard it was to adjust to life with a handicap and um, when she was talking to us about Uh, some of her struggles, and she's the founder of the Uganda Landmine Survivors Association. Actually, she's a landmine survivor victim herself. Um, Some of the struggles she was talking about, myself and another student were like, man, um, we could kind of help with some of the issues. You know, it just, it sounds like they don't have the right um, medical devices to help with people with disabilities. And so we started, or like we started working on a project with her to help her Um, with some of the struggles that she faces just daily and so um, after I took that machine shop class we were actually able to use the machine shop whenever we wanted and we were able to make devices for her Um, and that is kind of what started a passion project
0: where have you taken that passion project since
1: uh sure so actually um just last year we uh, started a non because we got a large grant from a company who was interested in seeing the project go a little bit further so um, Myself and the same student that started it now six years ago um, uh, Finally made a 501c3 certified nonprofit, and we hired some people in Uganda which is where Margaret is from and um We've started uh, fabricating the devices over there, specifically their pit latrine assistive devices. So they help um, people who can't use a pit latrine using, uh, you know, just their own strength. If they're missing any lower extremities, they wouldn't be able to squat and stand back up by themselves. Um, For those of you who don't know, a pit latrine is just a hole in the ground, simple hole that is used in place of a toilet. So uh, you can imagine that it would be really difficult if you don't have full use of your legs to use a pit latrine in a safe um, and sanitary way. So our devices help you do that, and they also serve a dual purpose as a mobility device. And um, we are currently distributing some devices through the Uganda Landmine Survivors Association Network and uh, fabricating devices in-country. So we have a team there it, doing that.
0: What, it, how, to, to fabricate one of these uh, devices, how much does that cost? Uh,
1: it ranges. We have four different designs. Depending on the person's disability, they might prefer one design over the other. Um, but the cost of fabrication ranges anywhere from $6 to
0: $16. So that has to be an incredible return on investment, just looking at how the, how far a donation goes, a hundred dollars could make, you know, several of these, Definitely. uh, and what an incredible way to see that, uh, that money go towards that particular, uh, cause. Have you been able to travel to Uganda?
1: Yes. Yeah. I've been there four times. And, uh, I guess every year since my sophomore, uh, sophomore year besides last year because of COVID.
0: Wow. Uh, so, that must be incredibly rewarding. And mainly, I, I want to say that you had your mind on projects like this all the way back in high school. Do you remember what was it? Almost the same design. Do you do you remember exactly what that was? Because I remember we talked about this. You you also had a similar type of. Kind of concept to to help people using art and or not, I'm sorry not using art using design uh, for people. Do you remember what that project was or that that concept was in high school?
1: Yes, yeah, actually, I think you, you helped me a good amount with my essays getting into college. And my idea in college or in high school was that I wanted to use design to build um, eco friendly houses for homeless people. So um, I had been inspired by a sculpture that I saw, I think, at the Museum of Contemporary Art, downtown Chicago, and it was this house made out of um, like ground up plastic bottles. And I was like, I mean, that that's incredible that somebody can make an entire structure um, out of recycled material. And then imagine if somebody could come up with a design that you could mass produce out of recycled material to uh, create housing for the homeless.
0: I, I think I was. This is kind of a question I've been holding on to it since you kind of brought this up, but you know, you have such a clear left brain strength and a right brain strength as well. And I was wondering if, if, and, and you kind of mentioned this before, but I was wondering how you could maybe explain how the artist helps the engineer in your brain and how the engineer helps the artist. Wait, did I just say that that correctly? Yes, uh, yeah. I, I, how, how, do, how do both parts of that identity kind of help and inform each other as you, as, you, uh, as you do your work?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I know that when I first went into engineering, I thought that it was just gonna be all math and physics and um, no part of uh, my left brain. Is it left brain is the creative side?
0: Yeah. Um, no, the other side. I think other so. side, it's- right. yeah.
1: <laughs> What part of my, you know, right brain was going to get uh, to participate, but it's actually, I mean, engineering is an incredibly creative field. Um, I mean, engineers are pretty much just professional problem solvers and to solve problems, you need to be creative and you need to use um, that right side of your brain so I think that I specifically at my job now the one you know that I do for Northrop Grumman um, I am constantly designing things I'm a mechanical design engineer so somebody has a problem or they need a specific part and I'm the one that goes and designs it and designs a solution to whatever test they're trying to run or whatever problem they're trying to solve and um, and so the creative part of my brain gets exercised constantly in that way, and I think um, similarly, uh, the the um, engineer helps the artist, and. Um, I guess the organization, I would say, and the like the execution of it all, you you can have a lot of really creative ideas. But the I'd say the left part of my brain is is the type A part as well. (laughs) And um, and, uh, you know, is the part of my brain that lays out steps that mathematically calculates what needs to get done in order to execute whatever creative solution has come to mind.
0: So, you you you've also worked with something called the Engineers Without Borders. Was that Mm -hmm. similar? Was that the original project that uh, that brought you to Uganda, or is that is that a different organization altogether?
1: That's a different organization altogether, but they they have very similar missions. Um, I know that uh, Engineers Without Borders they do a lot of water treatment. Uh, work around the world and infrastructure work in underdeveloped areas so with them I went to the Dominican Republic um, and installed water chlorination systems for a community there and uh, that work was was very cool I mean that's something that also I could totally get into for for a while but it uh,
0: please great. do. I, I was, uh, cause if you don't, I will, <laughs> I'll ask. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Talk about it.
1: Uh, so that trip was my very first, like, I mean, I think it was obvious, like you said, even from high school that my end goal has always been to help people. And so that was actually part of the, you know, analysis on what career I wanted to do. And I thought I could do a lot of good with, you know, my talents in math and my interest in art uh, to apply it to making the world better. And so I, I think engineering is like you can find a lot of applications for that. And so when I went to college, one of the first clubs that I saw um, the first few weeks I was there was this club called Engineers Without Borders. And I'd heard with Doctors Without Borders, so I had an idea of what it would be like. And they said that they do an annual trip to uh, this place in the Dominican Republic called El Cercado. and um, they were going to build fuel efficient stoves and install water chlorination systems. And so I did research with that professor for a semester on how to um, build and install the water chlorination systems. And then we went down there and we installed them in the uh, water systems that they had around the community.
0: How long did the install take?
1: Uh, We were there for about a week and it was, it was um, some planning to get, Uh, you know, exactly where we wanted to install it, make sure that it was going to be easily changeable for the community. So we also had to work with the community there so that they knew what we were doing and how to use it, how to fix it, if it was broken, how to change the filters, all of that. So um, it was also a process of of education. And um, I think that that's like really, really important. So one huge lesson that I've learned in my work in humanitarian engineering is that like, you need to be working with the communities, you need to be hearing the voices of the people that you're trying to help, and you need to be really listening to them to know what they need. Um, so that's that was really important. That was my first experience um, with it. So it's really cool.
0: Because uh, I, I, I could imagine that you would have to, upon leaving, who would be able to fix the device if something went wrong? would yeah. you have to leave the particular solution that would be one where they wouldn't have to call someone in? Cause that was the issue to begin with is that they didn't have access to that type of technology. Yeah. In the event that something went sideways, you had to provide them also with the materials and education to be able to fix it autonomously as well. Is that, yeah. is that a, a fair assessment?
1: Yes, exactly. We don't um, it's never good practice to, walk into a place, decide what they need for them, install it, and then leave with no education. I mean, the process needs to be a lot more integrated into the community than that. So um, that's part of what Engineers Without Borders does is they make uh, lasting relationships with the communities that they're working in and normally work with like leaders within the community. In this example, it was a woman who runs the church, which is where we stayed when we were down there. And um, they already the the person who is um, affiliated with Engineers Without Borders already knew her very well. And um, so once we were done doing our actual engineering work, they still have an ongoing relationship in case something goes wrong, you know, or um, we we specifically taught some of the other members of the church how to fix it if it broke. Um, But it's still, if anything else further than that went wrong, it's not like they were just left on their own there either.
0: Wow, what an incredible organization.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I, just, I love just the whole,
0: the whole description and design and, and, and as you said, execution of of all components of that to include the, the sustainability after you leave. Yeah. What a great organization. Yeah. So uh, so then back to University of San Diego, mm-hmm. how did you find your way to go to Northup Runham?
1: Yeah, you know, that part was kind of an accident. <laughs> I... Uh, didn't, you know, uh, have a huge interest in aerospace at the time. Obviously, like from what we've been talking about so far, my interests were lying a little bit more with humanitarian engineering. But I uh, was applying for internships and I applied at Northrop Grumman. They accepted me and told me that I was going to be on the James Webb Space Telescope. And that was my first time that I had heard of the James Webb Space Telescope, like Northrop Grumman, the reason I applied was because they're a very big company and there was actually a location in San Diego. So I thought um, that would be pretty easy. I could just stay put and go to that location. And then they told me that I would be on the James Webb, which was actually in Los Angeles. And that was, you know, my first experience ever in Los Angeles was through that internship. But it ended up that three months went by um, for that summer that I was an intern. And I absolutely loved it. I thought, uh, the technology was really cool. The mission was really cool. What the James Webb was attempting to accomplish and discover was incredible. So I kind of, kind of fell in love with aerospace at that point.
0: So let's talk about the uh, the James Webb because this is a, you know, looking at the website for uh, James Webb. This is a very ambitious piece of observational, uh, technology. Mm -hmm. Um, what, what, how would you describe the mission for it once it's, uh, uh, successfully, uh, docked in orbit?
1: Sure. Yeah. So the, the end goal of the James Webb is, is basically to understand more about, uh, what is in our universe and how it started. So one of the main missions is to prove or disprove the theory of the big bang right now. Um, scientists believe that if the Big Bang did occur, that there will would be a heat signature of the event somewhere in the middle of the universe. And so, um, we believe that if we can point the James Webb Space Telescope at where they believe the Big Bang occurred, they have a prediction on what they would see. And um, if they see it, the right heat signature, it could prove it. If they see a different heat signature, we could get a whole new theory about how the universe came to be.
0: Those are both mind-bending options, <laughs> one, yeah. one way, yeah. uh, one way or the other, right? So right. that's in, that's incredible. So that's an incredible scope and scale of what is being asked of this particular technology. Mm-hmm. Now, does this replace Hubble or uh, telescope, or does does Hubble do its own thing differently? What? How would you say like the difference between? Because that's yeah. probably the the most popular. Uh, telescope that's been bringing back incredible photography uh for many decades now yeah. uh, how will how will uh James Webb be different than Hubble to that extent
1: yeah so uh the Hubble you know is going strong it was only its lifespan was only 10 years and now it's been going for 31 um, I believe so. It's far surpassed its dedicated lifespan, but it's they're gonna let it keep going until you know it dies out. But currently, you're right. It's the largest telescope um, that we have. The it really its discoveries were the inspiration to the James Webb Space Telescope. Um, one of the coolest discoveries that the Hubble found was that if you look um at the sky through a drinking straw so like through this this the side the holes the size of a drinking straw you would be looking at approximately ten thousand galaxies oh yeah it's a it's a lot that's huge so they they realized with the hubble that there is so much more out there than we thought it's not just empty space there's a lot going on and um they kind of wanted to know more about what was out there. So they wanted a more powerful telescope. Um, Hence the idea of the James Webb. So um, the James Webb though is still quite different um, in the way that it operates and where it's going to be in the sky. For example, like the Hubble is actually pretty close to earth. It's about a third of the distance um, from the moon. So, you know, it's only a, it's only a third of the way to the moon, and so it's about three hundred and forty miles, which means that we can send astronauts up there to fix it. If Something goes wrong, which I think NASA's done like five or six times now, but the James Webb is going um a million miles away, so about three times the distance from here to the moon um and
0: so a little bit more difficult to fix if yeah uh, yeah, is- yeah,
1: no. No man missions there to the James Webb, unfortunately. When it deploys and um, gets set up up in its orbit, it's um, kind of a lone wolf out there. But it's um, 100 times more powerful than the Hubble. So the idea is that if we get it much further and have it be much, much more powerful, then we can see much, much, much farther um, into the sky and into space.
0: I can't even imagine getting, uh, there's just so many aspects that need to be in this device, this telescope, because obviously you have the lens, but you have to have a a fuel source or an energy source, and then you have to have the computational power Mm -hmm. to then be able to send it back to earth as well. Can you get into the like what what part of it that when you're designing parts of this are you doing all features of that like what or do you have a certain niche or specialty in the design are you energy are you the lens are you power what where are are you a a jack of all trades with all with, with your design work
1: yeah so actually my department is mechanical ground support equipment. And um, for the design of the flight hardware, everybody definitely has their specialty. They're not going to let, you know, an optical engineer design the fueling system. That's for the fuel engineers, right? But for uh, my department specifically, we are mechanical ground support, our mechanical ground systems engineers. So we design everything that is non-flight hardware, so the stuff that's not going to space, but is needed to integrate and test all of the flight components. Like, for example, um, if you look at a picture of the James Webb Space Telescope, you'll see that the two main components are the um, actual telescope itself, which are the big, pretty yellow mirrors, and what's called the sunshield. And the sun shield basically makes sure that one side of the telescope stays really cold with, and the other side of the sun shield blocks all of the heat and all of the sun from reaching the telescope. And it's going to deploy. When it deploys, it has um, hundreds of m- moving parts, cables that are unreeling to deploy the sun shield. And we need to make sure that that all works. Like I said, when it's in it's orbit, if something breaks, there's nothing that anybody can do about it. So we have basically a zero tolerance for any sort of failure. And so our testing regimen is more intense than any piece of hardware that's ever existed. And, um, and so we have to run multiple tests on the ground here and, and basically simulate, you know, in, in space, there's no gravity. So Something that my department would do would be designing a test fixture that simulates zero gravity so that we can deploy the sun shield here in Los Angeles um simulating the uh conditions of space to make sure that on orbit the sun shield will deploy it correctly
0: what is would you say that gravity is the most difficult variable to account for in design or what what is what do you find to be the most? uh, slippery of things to kind of simulate when you're, um, bringing all these things together.
1: Yeah. I would say for my department, yeah, gravity, we have like a lot of different zero gravity simulators, obviously, like there's a ton of testing that's been done on every single little component that get that gets onto the you know, flight hardware. So, um, all of the moving parts have been tested in a zero gravity, uh, simulation, and so my group has made, you know, tons of different uh, equipment to test the subsystems and then up to the system level. Um, but there's also other ones that are, are quite complicated. Like, for example, there's all the thermal testing, we need to make sure that it can withstand all of the different the temperatures that it's going to face. So you know, at one point, we, um, we bundled this whole thing up as though it was going into a rocket. And then we stuck it into a thermal chamber instead and like blasted it with heat and brought the temperatures down to space freezing and, um, did all of that just to make sure that every component on the sun shield will also be able to handle the extreme temperatures and vibrations. And there's a lot of different tests that go on. Um, but my department is kind of the, the one that designs all of the fixtures that hold it and transport it. And, um, keep it safe to during all those tests.
0: When did, when did construction and design begin for the, um, uh, for the telescope and and when is the going to be the, the, I guess, planned launch uh, mm-hmm. for it?
1: Yeah. Um, I think the initial concept or like the initial proposal was given to NASA in like 1966 or sorry, 96, 1996. And, uh, and uh, you know, that was like, I, I was one at the time when-
0: That's incredible.
1: Yes, yeah. And I think then Northrop got the contract in 2001, I want to say, 2008 is when things began to get put together, to get built. Um, like, you know, where, where subsystems were getting- Assembled and then, um, yeah, I joined the program in 2017.
0: That just the whole sequence of that. I, I was thinking, okay, so you were watching Sesame Street when that happened, yeah. and then, and now you're, you know, you're a key component <gasps> to all of that. It's, it's just amazing how this thing lives completely separate from you, and then you join it and you can uh, contribute yeah. and you kind of bring it. It's, it's a, it's a fascinating uh, uh, whole whole concept. So. The, just really quick, what what would be the temperature variations once it's out into space? Is it always cold or does it get hot out there as well?
1: Yeah, so uh, the temperature variation is actually on one specific point of the orbit. So it's going to be in the Lagrange 2 orbit. And um, this is, orbit was picked specifically because the Earth will always be in between the uh, space telescope and the Sun. And that's important because uh, what what the James Webb telescope is trying to read is heat signatures or it's using it's an infrared telescope. So that's another big difference between the Hubble and the James Webb. The Hubble sees visible light. so it can see the same sort of light that your eyes can see. But the James Webb sees um, infrared light, which is heat signatures. like if you were to get up out of a chair, Um, And the chair is still hot. That's a heat signature that your body left behind. And the James Webb is trying to look at heat signatures of stars that used to exist in places um, and left behind heat signatures in space. And I mean. to be able to do that, it needs to be able to be blocked of all heat coming from the sun. So on one side of the sun shield, it's about 200 degrees Fahrenheit, the The side that's going to be, you know, facing towards the sun and towards the earth. And then the other side of the telescope that's going to be facing into deep space uh, will be at negative 400 degrees Fahrenheit. Very cold. It's colder than Chicago. <laughs>
0: yeah yes at least for some for part of the winter you can yeah. totally I you you do you do not miss that I promise you, you. That yeah is, <laughs> no good so um what's a typical day like for you so you wake up you show up at work how does that um how how does how does it what's it like being in in the in the laboratory and in yeah. your whole design process
1: yeah so right now um I work as a lead floor support for my group so that means that um, I'm the one that's most of the time on the floor when operations and tests are being run um, the floor or when I say the floor I'm talking about like the laboratory where we where we house the telescope where we're running the tests on it um, that's called the floor and they have procedures that they run to do all of the tests and they need um, representatives from each department normally um to be on the floor uh, observing you know giving feedback watching the test making sure everything runs correctly and so um the first shift starts at about 5:30 a.m and uh so i'm i'm not too far behind that normally get up go to work um get to get to work on this telescope until uh, mid-afternoon and then um, I don't live too far so I live pretty close to work and Redondo Beach here and um, come home and I normally end up working on a tuero which is uh, the project that I talked about before. Um, I, I end up putting in some hours for that and uh, you know I live by the beach so it's not too hard to find other things to do. <laughs>
0: Redondo yeah, Redondo's so nice. Yeah. I, I family that lived in uh, Redondo many years ago i I visited when I was in high school and I have other family that lived uh, lives in Laguna Beach so i oh, nice. I know Southern California a little bit uh, so uh, so nice, so nice so when do you have do you have like a favorite technology? That you really like working with, like so you had mentioned that you just really found yourself taken with welding and all of that. What's what's your favorite tools that you get to work with when you're uh, in uh, at work?
1: So I'd say my favorite actually ends up being CAD or computer animated design. I do love making things with my hands and like, you know, um, I've always loved ceramics. So then that kind of translated into loving welding. I don't get to do those things very often, at least not for my job anymore, because, um, Because, you know, like, if I were working in on the manufacturing side, that might be different. But um, on the design side, my favorites, my favorite, one of my favorite tools is computer, computer animated design. And uh, the reason I love that is because it's basically sculpting, but on the computer. (laughs) It's like, um, when, when a test needs to be run and they need a specific part or they need to interface to this piece of flight hardware so that they can, you know, hook up their measuring instruments or whatever. Then I open up my computer animated software where I model the flight part that it ne- needs to interface to. And then I start creating a solution, which is basically just modeling or, you know, sculpting whatever solution I want um that'll solve the problem that'll allow them to attach their measuring hardware, you know, whatever they need. So that's kind of uh, my favorite tool to be using.
0: Is is the technology that you have access to just that much more advanced than probably what's available to the public because of of what you guys do like I just can't imagine yeah. the computing power of what you of the program that you're you're working with the speed yeah. Yeah. And, and all that is it just beyond anything that we can imagine
1: no actually I think um I I wish I could say yes to that I wish I think that like my entire department wishes they could say yes to that uh it's definitely more powerful than maybe like what what uh is available at West Chicago but actually not by much. I never got to take a class um in SolidWorks at West Chicago, but I wish I did. Um I don't know do, do you guys still offer that like a SolidWorks class? I don't
0: I think we have I think we still have like computer design at uh-huh. at school. Yeah.
1: Yes, yeah. So um I know that I think there were some other um alumni from my class that I was talking to and they learned how to use SolidWorks at West Chicago. Um, I didn't get to do that. But basically, the program that I use every day is like the uh, professional version of SolidWorks. It's called Katia. And it is made by the same company as SolidWorks. It has a ton of the same features as SolidWorks. It does. It's slightly more, you know, it's more advanced than SolidWorks. Um, but it has, you know, the same setup, the same programming, the same people made it. So, um, you know, and then they just give me a, a powerful computing computer, like a a sixty four gig computer, but that's about it. It's nothing that yeah. is unattainable for somebody at home.
0: So, maylie you were uh, you also have been kind of giving back as a as a role model in kind of uh, kind of like the steam type of, uh, educational mm-hmm. leadership. Uh, and I was wondering if you could kind of speak to how you've been, uh, kind of positioning yourself to kind of give back as a role model in such a way recently. You did some work, uh, I believe you just had a speech last week for First Star. I was wondering if you mm-hmm. can kind of talk about, um, your role as, as a role model in, in that, uh, regard.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, I, I'm very passionate about making sure that everybody feels like they are fully capable and have the opportunity to do what I do. Um, I know, like, it sounds intimidating, you know? It's rocket. It's literally rocket science. But anybody, I promise, like, um, anybody can do it if they put their mind to it. It's. It takes a whole team of people. So what I'm what I'm saying in this presentation does not, um, does not come from just me. It's a whole team of years and years, you know, of, uh, technological advancement. And it's, it's nothing that, um, anybody, or it's anybody could be a part, you know, of something as cool as the James Webb. And so I want, um, to make sure that people feel very encouraged to go down a path in STEM, um, especially young women, uh, I, like I said, I mean, I wasn't super gung-ho about engineering at first. And, um, I even had positive influences in my life. Like my dad was an engineer who told me that yeah, I could do whatever I wanted, but it still sometimes didn't feel like, um, like I could, because it was such a male dominated field. And I knew that, but understanding that it's just, imposter syndrome that could possibly be stopping you from thinking that you could. Um, Understanding that it's just the imposter syndrome and you actually very much can is a big, a big message that I like to spread. And um, last week, my presentation for First Star Academies also had to do um, with the realm of social justice and how space technologies relates to Uh, social justice and improving global development there's a lot of um, application for space technologies in the realm of global development so um, like me if you're somebody who's interested in seeing the world become a better place but you're also interested in space technologies those two things don't necessarily have to be separate you can do both and they do overlap Um, you might have to look a little bit harder and get involved you know um, any way you can, but it's
0: possible. That's great. Yeah. yeah. I was wondering, you mentioned this thing. It's a real, it's, it's a fascinating psychological hurdle that a lot of people in any capacity, I've felt it myself, mm-hmm. uh, even recently, sometimes where it happens, you, you mentioned imposter syndrome. Mm-hmm. I was wondering if you could maybe like, just explain what that is for everyone. And then like, how did you particularly kind of push through it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So imposter syndrome is basically when you feel like you are an imposter in a space, like you don't belong somewhere that you are. Um, But it's actually just a mental block because there's nothing that's impeding you from being there besides your own mental block. And a good example of that is something that I very much felt when I started at Northrop Grumman on the James Webb Space Telescope, um, was that I just felt like I couldn't speak up in meetings, like I maybe even had really good solutions to problems that were being talked about, but I wouldn't say it, you know, I would walk into a room, and I would not only be the only female in a room of 20 people, but it would also be the only person under 40. And that Mm made me feel like I didn't have a voice even though I obviously did and sometimes I did have the best solution but I wouldn't say it in fear of um taking up space or taking up some time you know and it took me some time to realize like no you're allowed to take up space in this room and you're allowed to talk and you're allowed to share your really great idea um it was just the mental block of realizing that, hey, it's just the imposter syndrome. There's nothing else that's stopping me from sharing. Um, and uh, realizing that you have what it takes and you, you even have the knowledge. Like, I, I would go to those meetings and I had already done my homework. I would probably looked at the problem more than anybody else there. So, so it wasn't anything besides imposter syndrome that was making me feel like I didn't belong in that room.
0: So, Melee, um, I was thinking uh, another question for you is, what do you think the future of humanitarian engineering is? like? If you could somehow create or allocate the resources to be the most kind of force multiplier for the good that would go towards humanitarian engineering that you um, that you ha- have this focus towards, what do you think that would be? Like, where's the best kind of investment in, um, uh, in humanitarian engineering, where, where would that, where would that allocation of resources go?
1: Oh man. Yeah. That's a big, that's a big question. And that's a hard one to tackle because there are so many, um, different aspects in which I think, you know, the, the world needs improvement. Um, that's like a to repair the world question. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, is it food, shelter, energy? I'm trying, yeah, I'm trying yeah. to go in my mind. Like where, where's the best return on like putting that type of um, imagination and, and intellectual power?
1: Yeah, I think one huge one um, globally and um, and just even in our own country is food security. And that doesn't sound like it has to do with engineering, but it totally does um, there needs to be the right infrastructure, um, to be able to make sure that everybody has food security. And, uh, I know that there are a lot of really talented systems engineers that are trying to figure out like when there's wasted food in one place, um, how to get that to people who need food instead of just wasting it. That's like an entire system that there are Systems engineers or industrial engineers trying to figure out. Um, I also think that water and sanitation is a huge one, and that's where a lot of my work has been focused as well. Um, just because I got to know a, a whole lot about global sanitation and what improved sanitation means for um, many communities in underdeveloped countries. Um, and I know that water and Uh, clean water has gotten a lot of recognition in the past uh, few years. Sanitation is now being recognized as just as important as clean drinking water. So that means like, I think it's important to look at some of the um, root causes of, of problems that exist. Like, for example, why do so many health issues exist? Why are so many people getting sick in a community? Well, the answer could be that, you know, there's not adequate sanitation in the area and clean drinking water and stuff so that's why it's important to go for those root cause issues and I think water and sanitation or it's called wash actually for short it's a millennium development goal is to improve wash so I think that's one that uh you know we should be focused on and get excited about you know if you if you've seen a a way that wash could impact your community and and help it then that's where to get involved for sure
0: That's so, that's so interesting. Mm -hmm. So Maylee, once the mission or the James Webb is, is deployed, do you stay on with Northrop Grumman or or do you move on to something else? What's, what's next for uh, in in that regard?
1: Oh, that's a really great question. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like I should be, Rolling dice now to figure that out. (laughs) Um, I know that I'm going to, uh, I'm part of the team that's going to go to launch. So I think I have um, several months. I don't think I mentioned it before, but the uh, James Webb Space Telescope should be launching at the end of this year. Uh, which is very exciting. I'll probably spend the end of this year in French Guiana, where it'll be launching from. So that that'll be exciting. Um, And then when I come back, um, there are like some other programs at Northrop Grumman that I might be interested in. Um, So, you know, they've actually been a really great company to work for. Um, I'm loyal to them. So we'll see if uh, I end up staying. I've also been toying with the idea of going to back to school Um, again, I went to UCLA to get a master's, but, um, I also would love to spend some time getting a PhD Um, and we'll see if that lines up correctly with when launch happens. Um, or if, you know, waiting a while is still a good idea. So yeah, we'll see.
0: Oh, that's exciting. Uh, Do you know what, what particular field for a PhD? Uh, What would that, is it, I'm sure it's obviously going to be engineering of sorts, but what, what what particular focus?
1: There's, so I would, if I stayed with, uh, within like strictly engineering, I could um, get it in mechanical engineering specifically. Um, But there's also some schools that offer humanitarian engineering programs or um, something more along the lines of global development as it relates to engineering.
0: Meili, you've been so generous. This has been just a fascinating uh, discussion today. I usually end the interview with um, asking the guest to share tips for success to with current Wildcats. Uh, what would you tell them?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I like this question. Uh, I would definitely say to start exploring what you like. Um, There's really no right answer to it uh, and you can do it by process of elimination, which is part of what I did. Um, Figuring out what you don't like is just as useful as figuring out what you do like. So um, join clubs, go to classes, ask your teachers. I mean, um, the teachers are filled with so much knowledge there. So just Try and see if you can figure out what you like and what what you might want to do um, with your time later. So uh, to me, that was that was really important. I loved the clubs and um, the way that you know I got I was in art club and swimming, and um, I was able to kind of figure out. But I still wish I did more. Like the fact that I think there was a club that was 3D printing, that might've been where some of my friends learned how to use solid works. And I wish I did that, but I, you know, I think it's important to continue exploring. Um, You don't need to know what you want to do, what career, what you want to have, but you need to know what you like. Um, I think that's a big one. And I think um, getting, uh, acquainted with whether or not, you know, imposter syndrome is affecting you and how you're going to overcome it. Those are my
0: advice. Ah, that's so great. Well, we are going to be having a big party when the launch happens and we'll be imagining, you know, you having a good time in French Guyana when that thing's going off. And that's going to be just one last question. Uh, How long will you be in French Guyana prior to the, to the launch?
1: Oh, I'm not sure yet. So, on my team, there's three of us that are set to go, and for six months, they'll need two of us there at a time. So, it could be for a full six months. It could be for three months. It could be for two months. We'll see. We probably won't less than two months.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, that's so great. Well, Maylee, thank you so much. This has been uh, so enlightening and inspiring and I can't thank you enough for your time today.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much for this opportunity. This was really fun. Makes me miss West Chicago, honestly.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Thank you so much, Maylee.
1: Yeah. Have a good one.
0: Thanks for listening. The episode page is loaded with links to find out more about what Maylee is up to. You can find a recent presentation Maylee gave to the First Star Steam Academy. There's also going to be a link to her Atuero organization and a link to more information about the mission and science of the James Webb Space Telescope. You can follow we Go Places episodes on iTunes and Google Podcasts. Just search WeGoVox or V O X.